This podcast is presented by Resolver, a tech company for risk and security. Hi, I'm Jeff Sieben, your guest host, and you're listening to The Watchdog, your eyes and ears on the latest news and rising threats in risk and security. In today's episode, we're going to chat about something you've heard a lot about in the news lately, data privacy and breaches. It does really seem like it's only a matter of time until your data or your personal information is compromised. Remember who remembers the Ashley Madison hack? It was this online dating site for extramarital affairs. It was hacked and the user's information, including their real names, addresses, search history, credit card information, was all leaked publicly. Data privacy and breaches always seem to be in the news lately. Today, I'm joined by two special guests and experts in data privacy to discuss the role and responsibility of organizations in protecting their employee and user data. Our first guest is Sal D'Agostino, CEO and founder of ID Machines and co-founder of Open Consent, a UK company. And our second guest is Constantine Carboliotis, director in the Cybersecurity and Privacy National Practice of PricewaterhouseCoopers to discuss. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, glad to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start us off. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and career? Sal, we'll start with you. Well, so yeah, I began to be involved with the subject as a result of being involved with robotics and other fun things and artificial intelligence, which I guess is what now is referred to as old-fashioned AI, um, starting about 40 years ago. And so I've had a long look at doing things related to automated gathering of information, starting with reading license plates in, in London in 1979 at a previous company. It's interesting to delve into this topic. You know, from computer recognition systems, I was then involved with a company called Core Street, which produced the uh, dial tone for most of the digital certificates and use in well, the United States government in particular, but also a lot of other countries around the world. So I've come at it from both the, an early Internet of Things perspective with doing things with machine vision and robotics to sort of the digital world. And then you know, through, throughout all of that, there's sort of been, a, you know, what does automation do thread to things? And I think the difference today is rather than the hacks that you were talking about previously, I mean, now it seems that things are resulting from the misuse of automation Mm -hmm. in many ways. You know, things have evolved with ID machines to do things initially looking at automating the management of things from a cybersecurity perspective. Open consent then takes that one step further with looking at how to uh, automate things from a privacy perspective. Awesome. Okay, Constantine, how about a little bit about your background and career? Well, I was uh, called to the bar in Ontario about uh, 32 years ago, and my first involvement actually in technology was goes back to then because I got involved working for a software company doing uh, expert system development for lawyers. And I eventually did go into the practice of law, but what I was probably best well known for in the legal community in Toronto was talking about law firm automation. And so I've been involved fairly early on. I can broadly say that I had actually a bulletin board in my office in 1992. So my clients could connect with me. I was doing a lot of IT-related work. And eventually, I went to work for CGI, doing consulting for them for law firms and legal departments as well, private and public sector. And ultimately, that's how I got into privacy, because one day a project manager said, hey, you can read a law. 
uh, you're the privacy manager. And so I did my first project in privacy in 2003. And ever since then, it's been just privacy for me. So I went from CGI, I ultimately uh, went to Symantec and ran their global privacy program. Was the chief privacy officer at Mercer for a number of years. Worked for a software developer, serviced the privacy community, and recently joined PwC as a director in the national cybersecurity and privacy practice. And that's me. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for that. So tell us, uh, maybe if you could use some examples and feel free, both of you, to, to jump in. Why is privacy so important? And what are a few examples of, you know, private information? Well, I'll say, you know, having been at this now for about 15 years, it's kind of a bit of a relief now to finally come in from out of the wilderness because we've been talking, you know, many privacy people about its importance for a number of years. And it just seems, you know, in the past year or so that it suddenly has become everyone else's priority too. And I think that it's largely due to the fact that the understanding that personal data is an inherent part of the modern internet economy and is, in fact, part of the currency of the, of the era, that we've begun to understand why there's a value to personal data. It is easily, uh, if you think of it as a currency, I like the, the analogy, um, we don't want it debased because it's the basis, again, on so much that we are building in the, the modern economy. And we also see the consequences when that currency is debased at a national level, when um, it's attacked. Um, and you can make analogies to how it was during World War II, for instance, um, the Germans attempted to wreck the British economy by producing counterfeit bills and not counting on the inherent honesty of the people turning it in. Uh, it didn't work. But we see today, I think, how personal data can be misused, can be corrupted and turned against uh, whole countries. So we do understand, I think, increasingly the value of personal data itself and how essential it is to the modern economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask, how do you see these currency examples being used? I definitely think for those of us that like to think that there's a good way out of this, um, that the idea that information controlled by the user at the end of the day has more value, um, no matter what currency it is. It, that's a challenge. You know, part of the issue is that so much personal information is already out there. Right? I mean, getting some of this, it's reached a critical mass and as a result also has a life of its own at this point. That getting it to go the other way is a significant challenge, as opposed to people understanding that there's a risk associated with you know, the misuse of information. Agreed. And I mean, I think that one of the things, too, is that beginning... More, more often, more recently, we're beginning to see companies understand the reputational consequence in and a part of any legal, you know, consequence, fines and, and regulatory action. Um, there's really now a turning point that, you know, people before would give lip service to this notion that, you know, yeah, no, privacy matters to me, but I'll still give up my password for chocolates. And that's not a joke, by the way, because... <laughs> um, someone conducted a test in New York and in London, and pe people gave up their passwords for chocolate. But, you know, th so there was this discrepancy. You know, we say it's important, but we don't act like it is. I think that discrepancy is beginning to disappear because people are beginning to act like it matters. And again, because it has taken us to the very brink. 
literally, for that to happen. I'm glad to see that it has. There are some technological forces at play, not the least of which is you know, being able to do things with in clouds with lots of data that have also contributed to the, the need to do something about this now. I completely agree that the reputational risk is hard for <laughs> any organization to ignore. And if you look at the stock price of certain companies that have had incidences, I would love to sum that number. I'm sure it's in the trillions now. So that's a number that's hard to ignore. But again, I think the interesting thing to us is, is that I think there's an opportunity to actually, instead of trying to deal with the risk and you know from a, a compliance perspective, to actually begin to consider what's needed from an information flow and re-engineering that. And I think that there are a lot of benefits from doing that. Sal, I want to ask you, is there a personal example or something practical that we can have the listeners sort of hear uh, about that rejigging of the of the flow? Sure. The way that your end user license works, right? Right now it's the I agree button. It's pretty easy to understand how that isn't exactly um, the most personal information friendly way to share your information. <laughs> so you yeah, mean so, is that just by hitting a check mark that says I agree and then hitting the next button on things well, like what well, well, right well well the, the point is that everybody when they hit the I agree button is basically agreed to something you never really want to agree to. So in order for privacy to be usable. Your privacy experience with your information needs to be radically different than what it is today. Maybe not radically, but it certainly needs to be different. And it would be something along the lines of where, as I began to be enrolled with my information, I had some modicum of control over it. The best way for that to be the case is that with whomever I'm going to engage, there's some public signal about their public privacy and my ability to understand that as a, my agreeing to things, right? So I think organizations and individuals right now, instead of managing their, their risk, need to understand how to create a better privacy profile. And if we can all learn how to broadcast that, then I think we're in a better place. And, and I also think that our information will be much more valuable, which is the reason why at the end of the day, um, anybody would do that. Yeah. And so I agree that our information, our private information is really valuable. I can tell you that I've gotten loads of coupons for diapers and strollers and that kind of thing. And I don't remember signing up for anything at the stores, uh, but we have a new daughter at home. So uh, somehow uh, this information gets used oftentimes to make money. Let's move a little bit into another hot topic in the, uh, at least in the privacy news these days, which is GDPR. And, you know, because privacy is such a, such a big topic, it is this currency. Is that why GDPR is, uh, has got some very steep fines if you breach these, this new legislation? Constantine, do you have any thoughts well, on that? Well, you know, the regulators got actually everything they wanted in this law. And so to, for it to have the impact that they wanted, um, there had to be that kind of level of fines. Because, you know, with the exception of a few things like 72 hours notice of a breach, which 
personally, I, I don't think is realistic. Um, most of what's in the GDPR is a reflection of what existed under the previous EU privacy directive and really uh, are, encompasses best practices, things we've been saying for years companies need to do. You need to know where your data is. You need to know how it's flowing. You need to be able to answer questions about it. Um, so the, the fines really are a way of making all of that very real and important for organizations. It makes it a board level issue. When you talk about the risk of um, 4% of your global revenue being at risk. Um, so it, it really is about making that important because, again, most of what's in there, I, I view GDPR fundamentally as a data governance law, has been uh, things that people in privacy and data government, governance have been talking about for years. Okay, so what businesses then fall under GDPR? Is it only European or businesses? Who falls under that? That means everybody with more than 250 employees. I mean, yeah, I'm sure Constantine can correct me here in many different ways, but it's a lot of people, right? Um, well, critically, what, sorry, I'm going to jump in. In terms of, it's not just organization. Of course, it applies to anyone who has an establishment in Europe, yes. But if you are processing European residents' data, whether you're physically there or not, you're covered by it. So if you're a retailer online and you're selling to people in Europe, you're covered by GDPR, um, where people can be often. Uh, just to jump in, I think that's a critically important point, Constantine. I can't tell you in how many foreign people are discussing this topic and are unclear about that. It's really widespread, which is an interesting thing to be observing, particularly as this heats up. All right, we get close. Well, well, it's it's wishful thinking. Oh, May 25th of this year. Yeah, I know the, they passed the law over two years ago. I was at a conference, a privacy conference in Washington recently, and I heard the Irish commissioner be asked, you know, is there any grace period? And she said, well, you know, it's the 25th is a Friday. You got till the Monday morning. Uh, the grace period has already expired. It's been out there. Everyone knows what the law has required for two years. Mm -hmm. So it is really now going to be uh, difficult to have everything in place if you're starting only now to aim for the 25th. So you've got to take pretty much a risk-based approach and focus on the things that are of greatest concern to your organization. But this has been around for a while. You've had the grace period um, and they're going to start enforcing. They made it very clear um, post May 25th. So what, uh, when you say a risk-based approach, like let's say I'm a business, I've got more than 250 employees and we didn't really get onto this whole thing quick enough. Uh, when you say risk-based approach, can you tell me practically what I could do like right now? Well, for most organizations, I mean, the exposure is going to be in certain key areas and, and those vary again between organizations. So we can't say this, you know, is a, a uh, as a blanket statement, but um, you know, where are you going to likely come to the attention of a regulator? Well, if somebody submits a subject access request, what do you know about me? And you can't answer it, or you can't answer it in the time frame that's allowed. That'll get you a complaint to the Data Protection Authority. Um, if you have a breach, that's a pretty clear situation where you're going to get attention. And it's not just that you've had the breach, as we can see from recent events, how you handle it really matters. So you've got to have an incident response program. In order to support being able to do some of those things, you really do need to know how your data is flowing. Mm 
you need to know what country it's coming from and where it's going to. And um, because that's part of answering questions about um, the use of data in your organization. It also highlights an area, particularly for Canadian businesses, where we may be at a little bit of jeopardy. Um, we have this thing called adequacy. And it's a lovely thing because it means the Europeans have recognized that our law is adequate in terms of the protection of personal data. And that's PIPEDA, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. Okay, so what does PIPEDA cover? It covers um, data collected in the context of commercial um, activities, but it does not cover some things that are under the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces like HR data. So if you're an employer and you have people in, in the European Union as employees, um, our adequacy doesn't actually cover that flow of information from Europe. And you need to make sure that that flow of data is done legitimately under European law. Interesting. You can't rely on our adequacy. So that's, and people often think adequacy covers everything. It doesn't. It only covers the transfer. When you bring data, when you are dealing with EU residence data, then there's another distinction, say, you know, just to, to add to, you know, Sal making that point about, you know, companies don't appreciate the exposure here. If you are processing data for a European-based company, meaning, you know, you may be managing, say, benefits or you're hosting data of any kind, if you're, the, you're their vendor and you're receiving EU residence data, you're also responsible to comply with the GDPR. And you'll be f imposed on you, not just by law, but by contract from your customers. I think that's where Canadian I mean, businesses are really feeling the impact right now is because they're getting contractual demands. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the focus of GDPR is around the processor, I mean, from our perspective. Yes. And, and it makes sense for that to be the case. And so, of course, any the processor is anywhere that information goes, either stored, acted on, right, for, for any of these data subjects. And uh, so it is, in fact, very widespread. And, and again, that's why we think that if you can manage to achieve this public privacy or usable privacy where by your norm is to be respectful and have that process in place, it really reduces your risk of, even if you were to get the attention of breach as an example, the fact that you were that privacy forward in your organization would put you in very good stead with any of the regulators. Absolutely. I mean, the more the transparent, the more control you're giving to individuals. You know, uh, there was actually a Harvard Business Review article recently that said companies that have transparency and give users control and have good policies will be forgiven much more quickly and will have much less shareholder share value impact than those that don't. So you get a lot of points. And in fact, this is what the GDPR really is asking companies to do is you know, manage things appropriately. Not perfectly, because there is no perfect this side of heaven, right? You will have a breach. <laughs> you will have a problem. But if you can show that you've done reasonable things in order to forestall those things, then it's minor. It will be forgiven, as opposed to you didn't bother trying. When we talk about businesses processing data from European residents or EU residents, are other countries dealing with this in a similar way or other regions you know, around the world? Everyone is falling over themselves to maintain. Well, the reason we passed the PETA in the first place was so that we could do business with the European Union back when. Mm -hmm. And so 
and you can't ignore a market of 450 million people. Um, we just entered into CETA, uh, the Canada-Europe tr uh, trade agreement. Data goes with services. So we have to do this right. And so there's going to be pressure on us to update our law, as there is other countries presently who want to do business with Europe. And, you know, again, data goes with the services. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the reasons why we put open consent in the UK because of their interesting, um, even though they're currently a member of the EU, um, you know, it, it is the fact that there, everybody needs to be able to do business. I mean, I think from a global perspective, Constantine, privacy forward countries, to some extent, maybe Australia, New Zealand, uh, certainly Canada, you know, as an American, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think we're at a deficit um, <laughs> when it comes to this, but, uh, yeah, and, and, and again, interestingly, you know, the, I mean, you talked about previous agreements and whether, you know, the, the American previous bilateral agreements with the EU will, will you know, are, are sufficient when this comes into play. I'd be curious about your thoughts there under, you know, safe harbor and how I think that plays going forward. And it was, again, interesting to hear the vice president of the EU Commission, uh, Vivian Redding, in um, Washington say, we want data protection, not data protectionism. And that was a very interesting thing, particularly to say in the U.S., because, you know, this is not about, um, you know, putting up barriers to uh, companies working internationally and, and, and sharing information and doing things over the Internet. It's about doing things the right way. And so I think that as long as countries are, you know, showing a willingness to actually uh, put in place the right frameworks, um, we can accomplish it. Doesn't have doesn't mean it has to be identical. And I mean, I think that's the challenge that Canada's going to face, is that we're going to get probably um, within the next year or so a laundry list of things that the Europeans are looking for us to do in order to maintain our currency with their laws. And to some extent, we've already anticipated it. There was a report from the Ethics Committee of Parliament. Um, proposing a number of changes, which I, you know, we, we characterize as GDPR light. Um, so we're going to be seeing a world where there is going to be more privacy regulation. And I think that the, you know, to, to your point, Sal, about embracing this, you know, it's enlightened self-interest to say that at a certain point, you know, we need to create the right rules. Many companies are doing the right things. We need to make sure that they're on a level playing field and that the bad actors are not taking advantage. Um, but we also need to make sure that there create, we create that confidence in the consumer, in the taxpayer, in the patient, because we want this world to develop, and it's based on trust ultimately. And so trust in what organizations are doing will be very important ultimately to their success. I'm going to throw in an example in here. We've seen companies that, uh, like Uber, for example, uh, where they have data breaches, how should companies inform people uh, about the data breach? Okay, so I, I've handled a number of breaches in the U.S. And, I mean, there are laws. They're very simple. Um, you alert people promptly to the reason for notification isn't just simply to go through a formality. It's to allow people to take steps to protect themselves. And the things that you do following a breach often is in relation to either credit monitoring or other steps you might take is, again, to protect them from the consequences of things that do happen, sometimes just because of human error, 
sometimes because of outside malicious parties. Um, so really it's about continuing that responsibility that we have under PEPIDA, under GDPR, protect people, protect people's data. Um, so, and again, no one is, I think, expecting perfection in this regard. And sometimes I will say from, again, personal experience, it's very difficult in a very short period of time to analyze what actually has happened, much less understand whether it's impacted personal data. Um, but the GDPR puts that 72-hour requirement on companies. If you're a processor of data, you're going to have even less time because you're going to have to notify the controller who's got to notify in 72 hours. You may have 24 or less. So it means that you have to be able to be responsive and you have to have the kind of systems and processes in place to detect and, and, and uh, deal with it uh, quickly. There's no question that is part of you know the the landscape in which we're we're operating now. So as businesses and consumers, we can probably worldwide expect a 72-hour response, or hope, or or something, for businesses to be able to share that with us. Well, that's in Europe. So here is the interesting sort of interaction. Uh, effective November one in Canada, our data breach regulation comes into force. And it, the notice requirement, because we're so Canadian, you know, it's as soon as it's feasible, right? So I would say that, you know, based on experience with the U.S., where there's similar language, 30 days is usually considered an outside of what you'd want to do in terms of notice. Um, but it also um, is going to be impacted by the 72-hour business. Are you going to treat people differently just because of where they reside? That's usually a bad plan. So if we have a cross-border event, you're probably going to be notifying to the shortest period of time that you're obliged to. Right. So it does present some, some logistical and, and uh, some logistical challenges and technological challenges. And this is where I think the, the concept of privacy automation could be quite helpful. I mean, if, if you have, as part of your information infrastructure, built in the concept of notices and pointers, and, and things which can help in these circumstances. And it's not a reaction to things, but it's, it's the way that you've built your information systems. Then, then there's a better way than that. Oh my God, how do I manage to respond? Which is kind of the, uh, and a call red dare to use the oil well on fire analogy that often is the case with, uh, personal information these days. There's a very good point there because while it's not explicitly stated in GDPR or any privacy laws, it is very, very hard to see how you can comply if you're not using technology. I think it's a very important point. You're not going to get by on spreadsheets anymore. There's got to be some automation. Okay, a different topic here in privacy is employees. So we have to use technologies uh, to listen in, uh, to see, to make sure that our employees aren't uh, you know, uh, doing things like, let's say surfing the web all day or going to visit mm -hmm. inappropriate websites. Uh, from, a, from an employee perspective, what kind of right does an employee have to privacy? You know, we've had some jurisprudence in Canada about employee privacy, and you know, the comment has been made by you know the former privacy commissioner for Alberta that, uh, and, and organizations are entitled to protect themselves. They're entitled to maintain um, some order about how people use the assets and and uh, and also um, you know use their time. But at the same time, 
um, you have to be reasonable. Again, the ultimate Canadian sort of point of view is you don't turn your uh, organization into a, a, um, a prison camp. And so you're, um, you have to be able to make those um, uh, employee monitoring has to be proportionate and reasonable. So you're not going to, if you're concerned about, you know, theft on the loading dock, putting CCTV into the, the washroom is really over the top, right? So that's an easy example. But it gives you an idea of the kind of thinking you have to apply. It's got to be proportionate, and it's got to show that you, you've got to be able to show that it's actually going to prevent the harm that you are trying to prevent. Um, and you can't go after individuals. You know, you install a key logger on, on it, an individual's machine because you think that they may be surfing the web. That's going to be, and that actually has been held to be out of bounds. Um, if you oh, say, I'm going to be, yeah, if you're going to install, um, uh, monitoring software, you're going to block, you know, say YouTube or other, you know, time-wasting kind of sites across the board, then that may be legitimate. Um, and, you know, you may be monitoring for obviously inappropriate use. You might, the key thing is education and policy. You have to communicate in the employment law context what your policies are, because otherwise you can't act on them. So you have to have acceptable use and you have to be able to, you know, train people and say, look, we do this monitoring. And this is not the way we expect you to use our technology while you're on the job. Sal, what's your take on that? I think the Canadian expression is actually pretty apt. I mean, as an organization, you, what, you, what you should be using it for is you should be reasonable. I mean, and again, I think that there are privacy engineering principles. It, we didn't men- I didn't mention it in the intro, but there was uh, an organization in the United States called the Identity Ecosystem Steering Group, which was a public-private partnership to, to implement a national strategy around trusted identities in cyberspace. Um, I actually served for a couple of years as its president. Um, I just, I'm the past president. I'm still on its board. And we actually created um, an, an identity ecosystem framework. And so, and around privacy, there's 15 things in there. It's data minimization, you know, just 15 things that organizations can do. And I think if they do that, then I think what we're worried about as employees is the misuse of our information. If, if, if organizations had better and and what happens is that they're they don't they don't do a great job with that they they take much more of it than they need to and um and as a result there's a there's a greater risk um i'm I'm sure Constantine's clients have, have done the the data assessment and our our folks are they were in a good position but I don't think everybody's lucky <laughs> and so so there you know some some ground rules around this i think are rather than talking about how bad the problem is like trying to shoulder in and see what we can do about it so um you know that's just an example of stuff that's out there and again but just be, being able to understand that there's best practice that you can put into place that will greatly reduce all of the risks for everybody involved around this i think is a you know, huge opportunity it's unfortunate that it's gotten to the point where it has but i don't think it's so hard for us to turn this the other way Mm-hmm. Sal, a little bit more in your wheelhouse uh, in terms of technology. Facial recognition, obviously a little bit of a privacy thing. If uh, my face, your face, our faces get out there uh, and into the uh, um, the dark, deep web, um, how do we uh, how do we you know protect things like that? Well, again, they've been at this a long time. I, 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 
a previous company put a facial recognition system in the Heathrow Airport in 1986. So um, it's been around that long. Hey. And then, you know, that was a machine that we built. Um, and, you know, so it's been around for a while. What's flipped is, and there's good research out of Carnegie Mellon on this, is that the ability for everybody to tag themselves and that our, the, the training and the, the, the proliferation of images about you um, that, that are now out there um, have created a database um, for the models that for the, so for the recognition to take place. Now, that was based on our leaking of our face through social networks or other things for the most part. Wow. Um, that, that kind of got it going to one level. Um, which, and, then, and then after that, of course, you have places like um, in China, for example. I don't know if anybody has seen recent demonstrations or capabilities of what they do there. But in, in that society, there are, there are no bounds really to what the government is willing to do or can do with the technology. So while in the UK, while it's a heavily surveilled population, I don't believe it's a case that there's just flat out use of facial recognition systems on the population for tracking people. But in China, in fact, that's what's done. And so they've been able to take, because of Moore's law, um, the, the sensor technology, which has grown to megapixels at this point. Again, when we started ages ago, we were, <laughs> we were dealing with hundreds of thousands, not megapixels, um, or even tens of thousands, when I, I think, when I first got into this. So... The fact that you now have these very cheap, and China makes more surveillance cameras than anybody else in the world. So they've, they, there's, been, there's a government demand, which has driven a domestic industry to produce a tech. And, and then, of course, with the, the, the artificial intelligence piece of it actually wasn't that hard to do once you had an ability to just point all these pixels at people anywhere you wanted. Um, and particularly if that's a government, you required, you were able to identify them as they, and where they live. So you could begin already to be build those kinds of uh, personal information databases. So, um, so that technology exists um, to wow. do this at a kind of a very scary, and it, and it well, not only exists, it's being done at that level. So, um, so then, so then if you want to talk more generally about facial recognition, I think, um, it, you know, it's an interesting topic. Uh, for me, it immediately calls to mind, uh, things around, um, ethics and, and the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And as someone who's been involved with it for a long time, I've always certainly tried to consider, um, those aspects, um, you know, it was much easier when I was just pointing cameras, trying to measure the length of McDonald's French fries or inspecting <laughs> currency. But when, uh, which, which are things I've done in a prior life, um, the, the use of machine vision to do this has some, uh, I don't think, well-explored consequences, yet, yet it is out in the wild. We are uh, we are leading down that path. Uh, I think that's probably a, a good topic for another uh, Watchdog podcast. Um, I'm going to uh, want to wrap up. We've talked a, a bunch about uh, employee uh, privacy, uh, a whole lot about the GDPR uh, legislation that's coming up. And the uh, the date again was I think May 25th, and you've got the weekend for the grace period. Um, we even started with uh, talking about 
when we when we give away our private information by clicking the I agree or I understand or you know that kind of stuff um, because we're you know we're getting access to software or something better uh, that we're going to benefit from it sounds really complicated for the average person that's out there uh, an individual consumer it sounds really complicated for com the commercial businesses uh, that are out there it sounds even a little complicated for uh, for governments around the world does I'm going to ask one last question. Does privacy need a control alt delete to fix it? Um, you mean as in let's just start over again? I don't know that that's really really going to ever happen. Um, I think that again, you know, it comes back down to um, you know good governance about really uh, thinking through the consequences of you know the collection of data. Uh, you're, you're right to point out the limits of consent when, you know, people don't read 20-page documents drafted primarily for lawyers for other, by lawyers for other lawyers. <laughs> and we really need to rethink how we're gathering that consent and also, you know, sort of thinking about ethical uses of data. And, I mean, you know, you can get sort of, you should be drawing people's attention to the really risky things or when you're collecting sensitive bits of information, you may want to really be, be very clear about, you know, getting consent in that case. But there are also, there's a lot of thinking that's been done and a lot of it has come from the research world about, you know, ethics boards and about reviewing information usage and thinking about it through from the point of view of the stakeholders who are involved. I think, especially as we get into the big data economy and, and, you know, talking about big data where sometimes we don't know what the ultimate use of that information might be, um, we have to come to um, looking at the problem in, in a very different way um, because there are limits as to how far consent can go, particularly when you're talking about, say, machine learning, as Sal's pointed out you know, how do you explain that to the average person? Mm -hmm. How do you explain how, you know, and there is an obligation under GDPR to be able to explain how profiles or automated decisions are made about an individual. Well, it may require a, a master's or doctor's degree to understand that. How do we communicate that effectively in a point in time when we were trying to get consent? So we have to really rethink this whole approach to consent and how we stand in for that perhaps with other mechanisms to make sure again that we're doing the right things. Right, Sal? Yeah, so I, I don't think a reboot is practical as much as it might be nice to do. I don't know. It's something trite like perhaps a privacy 2.0 um, would be a, a nice thing. Yeah, that um, sounds I right. Think, I, th I, think, I think that the you know, GDPR and uh, the, the just sort of the amount of privacy risk that's out there um, that people didn't really realize was taking place, and now we're seeing the results of it um, creates that opportunity. And so, it, I'm actually, and I think that you know, an important piece of it, as I said earlier, was this concept that people can understand what it's like to generate a privacy signal that we all understand. Uh, you know, I think that that you know, maybe, maybe if that's part of Privacy 2.0, we get a little bit, little bit better at this. Man, one entire world privacy. I agree. Statement. Imagine that, Privacy 2.0. Maybe it'll take a while to get there.
I'm actually going to give a talk about it in June. It's something called the Identiverse Conference in, in Boston. So, I've, yeah, I think some of us have a pretty good idea what we what that might look like. I think that I think that there is a lot of understanding the complexity of what's involved here, and that our personal information. Um, in context, it has many, many relationships that are associated with it and being able to understand what that is and then being able to manage it as a user and how we make that easy for that to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a significant challenge, but that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be um, the architecture for what we're looking at. Awesome. I, I think the GDPR is that privacy 2.0. And I think that it's going to, we're already beginning to see how it's, it's impacting uh, other company, countries' views about how personal data should be managed and um, communicated. Um, so it may end up being the de facto standard. I'm glad to see that we've got the law at 2.0. Um, we, we always like to joke about the you know, BLT. So the business, the legal, and the technical aspects of this, I think, I think you know, the, the law is leading here. Um, I think the businesses and the technology are, the businesses are becoming aware um, and that, you know, that you know, technology can do some useful things um, and that privacy engineering is not a new concept and that there may be an opportunity for all this, those things to come together. We have uh, all our collective private information, our patterns, uh, and everything that goes with that ending up as currency in commercial businesses uh, around the world, even in the criminal mind uh, and underground businesses uh, in the black market, that kind of thing. Um, GDPR hit them right in the pocketbook, so uh, they'll be, uh, we'll all be a whole lot better for it coming up on May uh, 25th, and, and when was that last date there uh, for the Canadian one, Constantine? November November 1. Breach, November breach 1. Notification. Yep. Breach notification here in, uh, in Canada. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I've been speaking with Sal D'Agostino, a CEO and founder of ID Machines and co-founder of Open Consent, a UK company, and also Constantine Carbeliotis, Director in the Cybersecurity and Privacy National Practice of PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff and Constantine. Uh, awesome, awesome. And thanks uh, for everybody who's listening. I'll remind our listeners to rate, like, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Resolver.com slash Watchdog. If you love the Watchdog, Uh, We're at episode number eight right now. We're hosting a live podcast uh, with some very special guests at a conference, our sponsor today, Intersect. Intersect is a forward-thinking integrated risk and security management conference. It's this May in San Diego. Uh, Intersect is uh, from the 20th to the 23rd. And very specially for the listeners, there's a a coupon. If you want to register, you can visit resolver.com slash intersect. Uh, that's resolver.com slash intersect and use the coupon code watchdog and you'll get 20% off your conference pass. Uh, it'll be a great event, jam-packed. Uh, lots of risk and security professionals will be there. Tons of content and I'll be there too. Thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful week. <laughs>